This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy Hallowell and Chris Field, the church boys. From the sublime to the ridiculous, but mostly ridiculous. I hate these guys. So, Billy, I, I think we should get this out of the way early. Um, well, two things we need to get out of the way early. One is, um, so this is going to be posting Friday, like uh, probably Thursday night, Friday morning, a little earlier than usual. And it's, that's happening for a reason. Um, I, I'm going on vacation. Dun, dun, dun. It's, we'll, it's your we'll paternity call it, leave. We'll call it, quote, vacation. Let's call it paternity leave. <laughs> no, let's not call it paternity because I'm not a sissy boy like like half the church boys. So, um, so yeah, so we're posting this and, uh, and, uh, it'll be up. It's going to, if we're listening to it, you're listening to it a little earlier than you normally do. Um, but, uh, we're doing that because I'm going on vacation, leaving, you know, Friday morning and we're actually, dare I say it? Your vacation sounds like torture. No, it doesn't. It's going to be awesome. No, I'm kidding. It's going to be fun. It'll be um, fun. So we live out here on the West Coast and, and living on the East Coast, we spent all, we, 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 we went to Disney World several times. And the ki- and um, my oldest one's the only one who's ever been to a Disney park. And she went uh, once in utero when we did our baby moon with our first child. And then once at nine months old when JC's, my wife's families went on a, a trip to Disney World. And I didn't get to go because I had to work. And then just before my daughter, my oldest turned three, when she was, well, she, we called it a, we said we were going for her birthday because she was turning three, but really th- under three years old gets in free. And it was like a week before her third birthday. So we went, but, um, so the boy and has never been to any Disney parks. And so no, it we does are, sound like torture because your family has to go with you. I know it's, it's not torture for me. Right. Exactly. So now we're uh, so we're not doing the Florida thing. We're doing the California thing. So we're going to Disneyland for a week. And Have you ever is, been to Disneyland? Oh yeah, a bunch of times. Uh, several times. Yeah, I've been a number of times too. Have you been to Disneyland or World? Both? I have. I've been to both. Okay, a number of times. I've been to Disney World twice, but I've been to Disneyland more times than Disney. Oh, really? World. So yeah, I, I, Disney World is fun. My favorite part of Disney World because there's Epcot and MGM and Animal Kingdom and Magic Kingdom. And my favorite part of Disney World is Magic Kingdom because it's the Disneyest. I mean, it's the most Disney. Who cares of all, about right? Animal Kingdom? Like, I'll I go to a zoo. Like, yeah, Thanks, Disney. Yeah, it's lame. Thanks, Disney, for ruining Christmas and giving us a zoo. <laughs> I forgot about the Christmas thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, poor Disney, because all, uh, you, the, the guy I had to deal with there, the press guy, was the nicest guy in the world. But you know, every time yeah, you heard know, from me, his heart I sunk. Know, I know. I, was like, I have another question about <laughs> your dis- your destruction of the Christmas holiday. Why do you, you hate please Jesus? Tell me. Yeah. Why do you hate Jesus? No, I'm kidding. Um, they do have a very nice uh, Christmas play that does yeah. talk about Jesus yes. and the nativity. It's centered around Jesus and the nativity. Yeah. Um, and I'm totally joking, but they have removed some very strange things from it over the years. Yeah. So I'm, we're going to California, going to Disneyland and, uh, which I love. I know it's been a while since I've been to Disneyland because what, the last time I was there 20 years ago, a long time ago, 20 years ago, I was in college. So yeah, 20 years ago. No close between 15 to 20 years ago um california adventure was not open yet it was just disneyland no you mean you mean they hadn't split the park in two and started charging two different admissions yet <laughs> no they hadn't <laughs> now california adventure is an expansion 
However, uh-huh. I, 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 I <laughs> certainly get your point. Um, but there's lots of fun stuff there and stuff that's new to me. So I'm gonna, we're going to enjoy it. The kids, are, the kids are stoked about it. And so Are you going to both parks? Yeah, we got the hopper ticket thing. Five oh. days. So we're going to, we're going to get down there on a Saturday, hang out, go to downtown Disney. You don't have to use a ticket because we don't want to use a ticket for a part oh, of a Downtown day. Disney is a cheap person's dream. I know. It's all this Disney <laughs> stuff that you don't have to pay for. Uh, but then, you know, we'll go out and eat and go to those little stores and stuff and look around. And then we'll spend, we'll do a, both of those parks for three days and then take a day off and go swimming at the hotel and stuff that, at the, whatever, the, whatever resort we're staying. I don't even know. And then we'll, uh, and then the, spend a couple more days at the parks and then get on the plane and go home. So there we go. That is, that is, and that folks is why you're hearing our melodious voice on a Friday morning instead of a Sunday morning. And so, and which also means, which also means, wait, speaking of that, which also means I don't know what's going to happen with this show next week. So, but it's all, it's totally up the belly. We will have interviews. We'll have interviews, posts, a bunch of free falls, but I don't know what, I don't know what a horrible We've been evil filled with interviews in lately. Morgan we Freeman. Bunch of the, great stuff. Beam family. People love us. I know. Allegedly. I know. I know. I love us. Allegedly. So. Allegedly. Um, Nibio Qureshi, <clears throat> which hopefully by the time this airs, that will have been, <laughs> that will have also finally aired. Um, <laughs> don't we need to do something? You mentioned our voices. Oh, yes, that's right. Let me get the uh, iPad ready here to get the sound. I'm sorry, get the soundboard ready here. Right. <sighs> oh, it's late for you. Hey. We're doing a late recording tonight. You're a little it sleepy. Is. You didn't have to teach tonight. And for so anybody who believes in miracles, I did a Bible study with Sarah Rivette tonight. Holy crap. That's right. We did. So it's been a packed day of working and Bible studies. And <laughs> Does her... Does, does the Sarah Rivette International version... Have as many swear words in it as I think it might. It doesn't. It uh-huh. doesn't. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> it's funny, though, because I would tell you, if I had to go back 10 years, there's no way in a million years that I would have ever predicted that Sarah Rivette and I would be sitting with our married spouses, because I thought she'd be a spinster, sitting with our married spouses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I never thought she'd be a spinster. I just saw Chris. Chris cracked open a Diet Coke, and I went I went for it, because I could see him oh. going to sip. No, but that we'd be sitting and doing a Bible study together. It's crazy. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty awesome. So Anyway, I okay, hope so, you joke. So we do need to, so we need to do this. So um, it is the, uh, is it his 50th? What what birthday is it? I don't know. I don't know. How old is his wife? Like nineteen? Probably. She's just. I mean, she's awesome. Pedro, Pedro Cortez, uh, has he's got this young model wife, and uh, he's he's just this round mound of rebound or whatever. He's. I'm just kidding. That's horrible. That's Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley's the round mound. I know, Pedro, 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 if you're listening here, I want you to realize um, when we have conversations about who your favorite is, who you enjoy the most on the show, I think you should listen to this episode over and over again so that you can realize who really is an awful creature. Okay, okay, that's fine. That's fine. But who's the one making sure that this happens for him? Huh? In our pre-show little meeting that we had, who made sure that we we got to do this? We got to make sure we do this for. All right, let's Pedro. not make yourself a savior here. Let's calm down. I'm far from a savior. I'm not getting nailed up anywhere. <laughs> well, that's despite, horrible. Despite what everyone would like to see happen. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Well, we're just sprinting to hell. Okay. <clears throat> so, are you ready to do this for Pedro? 
I mean, let's let's roll right. it. A one and two and a one, two, three. Happy hey, birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Did you just say <laughs> happy birthday, birthday to you? you. How old are you now? How... Do you remember those? Like little yes. <laughs> my my kids do them. All of them. What is it? You smell like a monkey or something? Or I don't know. I, oh, I don't know. They probably only sing that one for your birthday. And many more on Channel Four. I don't know. I feel like Pedro's got to be like thirty. I don't know. I don't know how old he is. Pedro, how old are you? Pedro, let us know. Yeah. Call Billy. At, I'm sorry. Um. So. Uh, now what was he now? You're totally, totally throwing. I'm oh, totally throwing off. Tra- awkward transition music. Okay, okay, I'm on it. Just a second. Here you go. Perfect. So while we're on the topic of abortion, I oh, think no. we should... <laughs> <laughs> I think we should talk. We got to talk about Donald Trump because not an episode can go by. You know what's so funny? I was telling my He's wife before clown. we came to record. I was like, Chris always gets me on late night recordings because I'm I'm halfway unhinged normally I'm complete there's no faculties or restraints left at this Chris just spilled Diet Coke on himself there are no restraints left at this point in the night so God knows what I'm going to say but we got to talk about Trump and his abortion stance the guy's a clown I mean he's I don't know so the big was the big controversy this week was uh by the way, I've got pop. I have Diet Coke everywhere because I'm a child. We need to wear a bib. Sorry. All right. So Donald Trump this week made waves because he went on Chris Matthews' show. Well, we'll play it here in a second. And he went on and Chris Matthews was asking about abortion and, and Donald Trump's talking about how rabidly pro-life he is. And he's asked about whether women who get abortion abortions uh, should be punished or not. So let's play this clip from from Chris Matthews' show. It's a pretty newsy little item, so here we go. Should the woman be punished for having an abortion? Uh, look. Uh, and this oh, is not something you can dodge. It's a, if no, you no, say it's abortion not, is a not, crime or abortion is murder, you have to deal with it under the law. Should abortion be punished? Well, people in certain parts of the Republican Party and conservative Republicans would say, yes, they should be punished. How about you? I would say that it's a very serious problem, and it's a problem that we have to decide on. Uh, it's, it's very hard. But you're I mean, forbidding are you gonna it. Say, well, wait. Are you going to say put them in jail? Are you, is that well, the Well, no, I'm asking you, about? because you say you want to ban it. What's I, that I mean? Would, I am against. I am pro-life, yes. What is ban? How pro-life. do you ban abortion? How do you actually do it? Well, you know, you'll go back to a, a position like they had, where people will perhaps go to illegal places, yeah. but you have to ban it. I'm you ban against, it, and they go to somebody who, who flunked out of medical school. Are you Catholic? Yes, I think I... I and how do you at, feel about the Catholic Church's well, position? I accept the teaching authority of my church on moral know, but, issues. But do you know their position on abortion? Yes, I do. And do you concur with that position? I concur with their moral position, but legally, I, know, I get but, to the but, question. Here's my problem no, with No, no, but let me ask you, but what do you say about... It's not funny. Your church. Yeah, it's really not a funny thing. What do you say about your church? They're very, very strong. They're allowed to, but the churches make their moral judgments, but you running for president of the United States will be chief executive of the United States. Do you believe, no, but, in, pun- but you're, do you believe you're, in punishment for abortion? Yes or no is a principle. Uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? 
Yeah, it has to be some form. Ten let, cents, let ten years. I don't what? know. That I don't know. That well, why I don't not? Know. I don't you know. You take positions and everything else. I frankly, I do take positions and everything else. It's a very complicated position. All right. So before we get in, I'm curious, what's your take on what he said? Well, obviously, I, I think he's nobody is really traditionally, at least it's, as far as I've been around the pro-life debate, argued for punishments for women. You know, now. That being said, if you are going to talk in hypotheticals, right? Right. Because it does, this is a hypothetical. There's no chance in hell that abortion is going to be made completely illegal in this country. I don't think that will ever happen. Right. Um, Not after Roe versus Wade. We could talk about restrictions. States have implemented restrictions. There obviously is a Supreme Court case about Texas doing that right now going on. But, you know, if you're going to talk about hypotheticals and it's not out of the question that somebody might discuss, well, who are you punishing then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, are you punishing the doctor? Are you punishing the woman? Should there be a punishment for the woman? What is that punishment? Is it a 10-cent fine, um, as was discussed in that? Is it something more? Um, without advocating for that, which I'm not, I'm just saying the discussion of that, if you're going to talk in hypotheticals, seems like that kind of would have to happen right. in that discussion. And we're, we're Donald, so here's, here's two things. So Donald is both screwy and consistent on this. It's what, that's the really strange thing, right? Because he's, and he's, here's where he's screwy. He thinks that this is what advocate that, that conservatives have advocated. This is what the Republican party has advocated. And what he does is he has betrayed himself to be someone who has never been a serious conservative Republican ever that he's, that's never been a serious thing for him. So what he has done is, and I've heard other writers say this, so this isn't an original thought to me. I've never had an original thought in my life. But what he's done is he's, he says, oh, I've got to be rabidly pro-life. So I'm sure that the rabidly pro-life people who I need in my base would say, yes, punish the woman. And then he gets done, has this interview. He hasn't given it much thought, but his reaction is, what's the most, what I think is the most conservative, rabidly pro-life thing I could say? And say, yes, punish the woman. It gets done. He gets slapped around in the media for it. And two hours later, changes his position, which is what he did. He came out and changed his position. Now, there, his people say, no, we never changed your position. You did. You did. Obviously, you changed your position. You came out and said, punish the doctors and not the women. But so, okay, so that said, though, what do you think about the consistency of the argument? I mean, it it is strange, um, and it's such a complicated issue, right? And, and but again, it is strange. And again, Republicans and conservatives, and especially the pro-life movement, like the March for Life people and all those, they've never advocated the punishing of the of the mother, right? No, and okay. I think that's because a lot of people believe, and I know I was saying this to you off air before, you know, a lot of people believe that many women are victims of, of some sort in this system, that they don't, you know, this is just an idea that I've heard perpetuated, that they don't necessarily have all the information. Maybe they're from um, lower income communities. They don't quite understand all the ins and the outs of the procedure that they're doing and that they're undergoing. Okay, yeah. fine. You know, that may be that may be part of this discussion, part of part of this debate and what drives it. But I guess to me, you know, it is it is interesting. If you are going to say abortion is completely outlawed, um, are you punishing the doctor for doing it? Are you punishing the woman for doing it? Is it strange only to punish the doctor when the woman's going to that doctor looking to end the pregnancy? Again, not advocating. I'm just saying, like, when you think about the issue, if you were going to advocate that. Right. That it be completely illegal. Who are you punishing and how are you implementing that? It, yeah. it is a bizarre thing 
to consider. And I don't know what the laws looked like in all 50 states before Roe versus Wade. I right. don't know. So, right. and and the and the fact is, if Roe versus Wade were overturned, uh, abortion wouldn't immediately become illegal. Abortion would be sent back to the states, and the states would decide what to but do. But most with states have. And in fact, New York has moved to make it more more liberal over the years, right. I believe. But most states have provisions, you know. Now you might have some state like what would Texas do with, you know, with right. abortion? I don't know. Um, and you might also have another Supreme Court case at some point that limits it. Yeah, look, if Roe versus Wade had limited abortion to three months or something, um, or had had some sort of cap, I think you'd have a lot yeah. less controversy. Some people oh, yeah. would still obviously be opposed completely because they would believe abortion's always wrong. Right. But I think I think that there are certain things that people there. There's a middle ground on the issue that could make people happy enough to not be outraged by it. Probably. Yeah. I don't think we have that middle ground I, right now. Uh, well, I, I well, I don't know if everybody anybody ever not be outraged about it but uh, you know but so here's my question though on the on the lack of consistency because i do find uh, listen i understand the reasons for being inconsistent in fact let me read that i i, I told you i shared with you a quote that matt lewis had written uh conservative columnist right matt lewis had written about this what, uh, what trump said and here's what lewis writes and this is i love matt lewis i used to work with him and i, I love the guy uh, but I don't always agree with the things that he writes. But this I thought was very well well done, and I want to get on get into the arguments about consistency here in a minute. But I want to read what Matt Lewis writes because it's a it's the pragmatic approach. Okay, he says, in truth, like the notion that there should be exceptions for rape and incest, which you have and I have discussed. Actually, we've discussed the rape and incest exceptions, and I you know I have said I don't I don't believe in exceptions. I believe a life is a life is a life, right? If it's a life, it doesn't matter how it got there. It's a life. Okay, go back to this now. In truth, like the notion that there should be exceptions for rape and incest, the notion that the on, that only the abortion doctor and not the woman having the abortion should face penalties is inconsistent with the notion that abortion is murder. Yet those political compromises are necessary in order to cobble together a palatable and defensible, if admittedly inconsistent, public policy position that might someday actually be able to win the argument in mainstream America. Part of the goal is to remove the ability for pro-choicers to demagogue the issue by scaring vulnerable women. Now, thanks to Trump, that's back on the table. And that's Matt Lewis's position. And and I agree with him that it it is inconsistent for us to have this argument that we're not going to punish the mother. If abortion became tomorrow illegal and the court said abortion is murder, if a woman hires a person to, mur to under the law, murder her child, she would be guilty, right? Yeah, that's, that's the whole issue here, which is interesting... You know, it's interesting because if you're going to follow the logic like you would on any other, it's almost like saying in a prostitution case that you would only prosecute the person buying the prostitute, you know, purchasing the prostitute and not the prostitute themselves. Right. Let and maybe there are laws some places that operate that way, but as far it, it would seem to me that both parties, the person right. seeking the prostitute and the prostitute selling herself, and if it's illegal, would be responsible. You right. obviously not direct parallels, but right. some interesting parallels there. So I, I, here's here's an example I would give, and I and I gave this example to Scanlon. I'm pretty sure it grossed her out, but and I and I say this only in that I don't know how else to to relate it to what if abortion is murder and the law then recognizes it as murder, should the woman be prosecuted what if a woman comes home from the hospital with a baby brand new baby she's just given birth to the baby and she comes home and she hires a hitman to come and put her baby in a sack and throw the baby in a trash compactor 
is she guilty? The law would say yes. Right? I'd, but I, they wouldn't a week before that. Right. They say wouldn't a week yes. before that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> if she if she killed the baby. But if abortion in utero. if if abortion were considered murder, then she would be considered guilty as being at least partly guilty in the in the murder of a of a child. I mean, that's where that's where now that's where Trump Trump was inartful in what he said. The consistent logical answer to abortion is murder. Yes, the woman be punished. That's the logical, consistent answer. However, that's never been the answer that pro-lifers and conservatives have given because they know that that doesn't sell. And so, they want to be compassionate. And all they want to sound too. compassionate, yeah. and they want to try to build the coalition that Matt, that Matt Lewis talked about. But I wonder if, again, I'm just wondering if, I'm not saying I'm taking one side or the other, but I'm one, I wonder if, do the people who are on the fence about what they believe about abortion, do they see that inconsistency and say, you don't even really believe the thing you're saying? Is that possible? It's possible. I think, though, that this is one of those issues where there are people who believe 100% that abortion is wrong, morally evil, but yet they would not want to make it illegal. The, yeah. and, and I think that this is one of those issues where you have people who will be generally pro-life people who would say, well, I guess I'd allow abortion to be legal up until three months, even though I think it's wrong. I yeah. guess I would allow abortion to be legal for one month. I guess I would allow it to be legal for four months. You know, And you get into these bizarre specifics on an issue like this. It's really hard to put people in a pro-life and a pro-choice camp, and it becomes even harder to consider, well, what do you do then if Abortion is illegal again. How do you? Right. It, it's just so many layers of chaos. And I know for you, I think it's it's a pretty simple. For me, I, morally, it's a pretty simple thing. Legally, I I think I completely think it becomes complicated because you you do end up, you know, what Chris Matthews said. There's some validity. You are going to have a lot of people who are going out and getting illegal abortions. And there are going right. to be, there will be a health crisis probably to some level because of that. So yeah, but of, of their own choosing of their own choosing, but who's right. going to end up paying for it, dealing with it. Right. And, you well, know, but it, that, but that, but that's, but that's, that's why we have got to, uh, it's why I'm not a fan of, we have to get away from legislating morality. Well, I'm not saying to legislate morality. I'm saying that morality ought to guard our, what is our, what our well, laws are. And why are you not electing people who have morals? That right. the argument right. of right. well, I abide by my by my church's teachings, but I don't believe. Well, okay, well then you should want to see that those teachings, right. if you believe in them so right. strongly, reflected in the person you're electing. Right. That's only vote natural. For, vote which for is people. exactly why atheists and agnostics are trying to launch all of these political initiatives this year because they want their values right. represented. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you're one hundred percent right. Now. Um, we should probably, because it's getting late for you and we've got a couple interviews we want to do. Do you want to take a break here? We'll come back and we'll, we'll play an interview. Whatever. What one are we going to do first? I think wildflower. Okay. We'll come back in just a minute. And now back to the church boys. They're a real pain in my Okay, so we caught up with two people who I know very well, and it's always it's always bizarre when you interview people you know. Well, I know one of them pretty well, uh, really well, and the other one I, I know, you know, I've worked with. Um, but it's always weird when you're interviewing them. Uh, and this particular project is a film called Wildflower that's coming out 
Um, it's in theaters in some countries. Um, it's coming to DVD, straight to DVD in the U.S., but it's going to be aired on Lifetime um, coming up this summer, I believe. It's a film called um, Wildflower, and it's about what's interesting about this movie. And full disclosure, are you in? I, it? I'm barely in it. Like you won't even notice it's me. No I'm a doctor you, in a hospital. No one. Wait. No wonder you wanted to interview these That's, people and have it this on. This is not why. This podcast. is not why. Well, I assisted in, in mm-hmm. also, you know, I I'm I have some sort of production credit in it. I don't know if it's co-producer. I don't know what, but I have a production credit in this movie too. Um, but I love, look, I love faith-based movies, and it's actually something I'd love to get more involved in. And so this is kind of like one of those projects that I was able to do a little bit. <laughs> I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing, Mr. Hallowell. I know exactly. You are angling. You are angling for roles in movies. Is what you're doing right now. (laughs) No, I would love. I would love to be more involved and just see the scenes. I was only raptured and left behind. I had a very brief rapture scene and left behind. (laughs) And (laughs) unbelievable. (laughs) Prior to writing an end times book, I was raptured. and then th- this movie, though, you know, I wasn't heavily involved. I worked, I helped in the script. I helped with some advice. And, and But what I love about it is it's not a Christian, Christian movie like God's Not Dead. It is a, it's a movie with a faith message. Christians are in, were involved in it, heavy duty. Um, but it's about a girl who suffers with trauma that she's faced. Um, it's really a suspenseful movie, but that, you know, has a good, really good message about mental health and the struggles people go through in the in the end. And so I won't give too much away about it, but I spoke with Nick DiBella, who wrote, directed, and produced the movie, and with Stacy Reed McGregor, um, as I drop my pen, Stacy Reed McGregor, who uh, was is a producer of the film, also a consultant. She's a she is a therapist, and so she was sort of with them. They really wanted to take this plot, this suspense, this thriller, and and add a dimension to it by having a therapist sort of guide them through what is what is trauma for a person, what does that take them through, and so um, and she's a very they're all very strong Christians and really wanted to leave people. I think with with a mental health message that everybody could get on board with, Christian or not. Right. So, right. not a documentary, entertaining, uh, very good film. All so, right. roll it. It's Billy Hollowell here with the Church Boys Podcast, and I have a couple of very special guests on today. Uh, some friends of mine who have a very exciting new project coming out. It's director, writer, and producer Nick DeBella, and co-producer of the new film Wildflower, Stacy Reed McGregor. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Thank you so much, Billy, for having us. Yes, thank you. It's great to be able to talk with you. It is. It is. And, you know, I love having people who I'm friends with, I've interacted with on the podcast because we know each other, we've talked before, and in fact... You know, I've also helped out with this with this project, Wildflower, and and been a small part of it. And it's been really fascinating, just from my perspective, to sort of see something kind of go through all of the steps, see a film go through all of the steps. And um, you guys are preparing now for um, sort of the launch pad, which is April fifth, when when this uh, film will be available in stores and it will be available to the public. And then, um, you know, obviously there are some other exciting things that will be happening with it coming up uh, beyond that throughout the year. But let's just start uh, with the title, Wildflower. Nick, where did where did you come up with this title? That's a really good question. And so, because it's interesting because the story sort of has this sort of 
I call it an inspirational thriller. So it's got this thriller aspect to it, but there was something about wildflowers and how they grow in broken places. And we have a girl at her core, she's very broken, but she's thriving. She's trying to thrive, you know? And I just thought I'd try to take that, you know, that and kind of run with it a bit. And um, as you see throughout the story, um, one of the things about our main character of Chloe that she remembers when she was little, she always remembers that she loved playing in fields of wildflowers. That's when she felt free. That's when she felt safe. And she always, throughout her life, has tried to get back to that sort of feeling, you know, and um, dealing with some of the trauma that she's dealt with since she was a young child. It's been very difficult for her. So wildflower kind of represents a number of different things, but it's kind of her goal. It's kind of a metaphor for her freedom. Yeah, and I love that. And I feel like, you know, what's interesting, and you, you just sort of hinted at that, and you've given a little bit of, of the plot line here. Um, it's, it's a movie that, it's a thriller, but it also has this message of faith, and it also obviously is very entertaining in that it's a thriller, but leaves people with something. You know, there, there's something there, and a lot of times with thrillers, you know, that, that's sort of the whole point of the film. There isn't much beyond that, but Wildflower differs in that there is something beyond that, that there is a message for people. Um, yes. Talk yeah, to you me. know what's interesting about that, Billy? This is... Um, when I set out, once we finished King's Faith and we took some risks with our first film, King's Faith, you know, where we made a film that wasn't so much, you know, wasn't really, really, really faith heavy. You know, I wanted to, I felt like sometimes if you get there, there's a lot of wonderful faith movies made, but I sometimes felt that if you get it too heavy, you might suddenly um, alienate an audience that really should see your film, an audience that, that needs to be reached by these films, they might be allergic to them, you know? So trying to kind of build something into these films that's maybe a little edgy, a little more entertaining, that kind of draws that kind of kind of audience in, or maybe a more mainstream audience in. And then so um, what's interesting about King's Faith, we, did, we were able to navigate that pretty well, but I wanted to even take it a step further with Wildflower, maybe put a little more edge in, into some of the suspense and some of the thriller aspects. But when I started writing the story, that's about what I had was the thriller piece of it. And what where Stacy really came in and helped me out in a really big way was putting the putting the layers into the putting I just the the right now the um when I started with that story as a thriller, it was a thriller. And it had no really meat on the bone, really. So we needed to kind of layer that character as to kind of just so it was more than just a plot device. What was driving all those thriller aspects? What was going on at her core? And that's where Stacy stepped in and really, really helped me develop all that based off of her experience. And maybe Stacy might want to speak to some of that. Yes, Actually, Go for um, it. I'm glad Nick said a few of those things. And what really strikes me the most is that um, many people, when they see a movie, I think they want to see something significant and relevant to their own world or to their own experiences. And there are so many individuals who uh, struggle with um, trauma and and uh, difficult childhoods that to see that there's hope and that there's a way to get to the other side of that is really the part that was probably the most profound for me. So combining this whole thriller piece, um, but also uh, including the relevance of how people can relate to it today, just made it fuller and richer, I think, and um, sends a message out that, uh, you know, um, it's we don't have to do it alone. And... Um, 
kind of combines both themes. You know, it's interesting too, Billy, is that in the middle of all of this, after I started then working with with Stacy on this project and talk about a God moment, I was asked by the Ad Council here in Rochester to um, direct a PSA for um, child sexual abuse. It was almost like it was a God moment there. Like initially, I was like, "Oh man, I, I didn't know if I had the time to take it on," but I thought, "Well, maybe." Maybe I'm meant to do this so I can kind of learn more. And why I learned so much doing that uh, public service announcement about child sexual abuse and stuff like that, all that stuff started to kind of move into the movie a bit too, into the character. So it was very interesting kind of how all the timing kind of came together on that. Yeah, and it's interesting that, I mean, you, you like you said, you had everything down for this film to be um, ex- exciting and suspenseful and all of that. And then Stacy, with her extensive counseling background, coming in and sort of rounding that out and giving the depth of the characters that, you know, you, you really sort of need that experience of somebody who knows to come in. And it is fascinating that you had that um, that job sort of pop up, that request yeah. for that to happen right at the same time. Because... Yeah, this this is a, a film, Wildflower, that, that definitely tackles this issue. And we're seeing a lot of people talk about this issue in churches, outside of churches, of mental health. And I think, you know, every time there's a shooting, this sort of comes up, you know, again and again. And unfortunately, that just tends to be, obviously, there are many other instances in life where it's important to address the issue of mental health. But I think on a national scale, we talk about it when something traumatic happens like that. Um, and, and we talk about where do things stand? Are we helping people enough? And there's this overwhelming feeling that maybe we aren't helping people enough. Um, what are you guys hoping, and either of you can speak to this, maybe Nick, you, you'll want to start, but um, what are you both hoping comes out of this movie after audiences watch it? Well, when, of course, when we started making the films, it started with King's Faith and even with um, now with Wildflower, we're just hoping to touch an audience, reach an audience, um, and, and, um, you know, impact them with a message of hope, you know? Um, I mean, if you can do that with a movie, it's great. I mean, like with our first film, King's Faith, that you know of, I mean, who knew the things that would shake out of that, that all of a sudden, you know, they started showing the movie to at-risk kids and, and prison ministries all over Canada and the United States started using that film. I mean, so it's, those are the interesting things that kind of shake out of, um, you know, projects like this. I mean, if you're fortunate enough, if um, God smiles on them enough, right? So all we're going to do is, is continue to run the race really hard and, 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 and you know, the good things will com- come out of it. So my hope is that this film will open up a conversation. My, my, I had a little bit of a fear, if I'm being honest, when I was making this film, going, oh, did I still err too heavy on some of the, the, the thriller aspects? Is enough of the other story in it? Um, the core story. But as we started screening it and test screening it, the answer was yes, there is. And there's enough to start a conversation, enough for people to ask questions. And that's, of course, where, where folks like Stacy will kick in. And, you know, and Stacey, what, you know, what can you say? What's your hope for this? Um, first of all, working on this project actually had a huge impact even in my personal life. Uh, it helped me grow in in a gazillion ways, and um, I guess that's kind of what happens when um, you do something that's so congruent with your day-to-day work, which in my case is being a a therapist and seeing um, women come to my office broken and stalled in life because uh, they thought they weren't worthy, 
or um, that they they um, had no chance of having a real life beyond the abuse. And um, Chloe telling her story is near and dear to my heart. Um, she's uh, actually inspired me, even though she's only a character, to continue to pursue um, God and to make him central. Uh, to know the faith is... Um, definitely impacts how we heal and when we heal and if we heal. And that's kind of the stance that we take at our counseling center, you know, that it, it takes all those pieces together to um, help someone overcome. And so I really, my biggest prayer for the movie is that uh, a woman would see that and realize she doesn't have to stay where she's at, that she can move forward and that she can really have an amazing uh, life, an abundant life beyond anything she could ever imagine and that the abuse doesn't have to own her. Yeah, and again, it comes at a time when I think a lot of people are talking about this and you're, and you're seeing it. And when we talk about appeal of a movie, and I think it's interesting, and we kind of touched on this a little bit before, but you have movies like God's Not Dead, War Room. Those are movies that are very clearly, I believe, um, and I think even that at least the directors of War Room would say they're geared towards a Christian audience mainly. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the, but then you have movies like Wildflower that can appeal to so many people. And I think, you know, there, it is an interesting distinction, a movie that is, you know, a faith-based movie and then a movie that deals with faith or that includes faith. Um, and you know, you do kind of have a wider net of people you can bring in on a movie, I think like Wildflower, where it appeals to the faith audience, but it also is dealing with issues that everyone, even outside of that audience, are, are dealing with. What, what would you say about that, Nick? Yeah, actually, it's, I totally agree. And the thing is, it's, honestly, it's a tougher climb for us. Um, you know, those other films are fantastic films. Those guys have such, have such a gift and are so blessed to be able to speak to that audience that way and then have that audience support, you know, the faith audience support those movies like they do. Um, with us, and I'll tell you, every distributor, every marketing group, whenever they see our films, they're initially like, oh, this is going to be a little tough for us to sell, especially if these groups, so these distributors or marketers are in the faith space because it's, they are riskier. They're trying to reach beyond those, that, that faith market. And um, so it's a little bit of a tougher road. While it could open us up to more, you have to work harder to kind of almost – break the brand a bit because they'll see, you know, people will say, oh, is it a faith film? And then all of a sudden when they watch it, they're like, whoa, that was way beyond that. It held my, you know, it had a whole bunch of different stuff that really engaged me. It was, it was a story that almost had a light touch on the face. But at the end, it really kind of all came together. So it's a little more difficult, especially when you're working at the budget levels that we do, when you don't have um, 10 or Twenty or thirty million dollars to create awareness for your movie, where you're kind of doing it on the grassroots level, it's a little bit of a longer, tougher climb. But that's okay. We don't look at these things as sprints. We look at them as marathons. And um, you know, like our first movie, it's out there and it's selling. It's been out there for a few years, and hopefully, um, with Wildflower too, audiences audiences will find the movie over time. And you're right, a, a broader audience will find the movie. I would just add to that, and I really don't have any knowledge of the movie business per se, but what I really love about this genre and um, the way it's put together is it kind of brings together two very different worlds. Those who are, um, you know, strong uh, 
believers in faith, and then there are those who um, maybe know about faith but really haven't made a commitment. And it kind of brings the church and the um, the world kind of together in a way that we can work together to solve a, a very serious issue. And if we could build that cooperation um, between uh faith and other agencies that may not be faith-based working together, I think we could do some amazing things to help people that have suffered trauma. Yeah, I think, again, that's like, that's just the most interesting part of this movie to me is that it it deals with that, the very serious, there's so much that can come out of the movie that that can, there's a lesson that people can leave with, um, that anybody could leave with. Um, and particularly, I think, people of faith, because churches should probably be the place where, I know there's a lot of other issues too, cancer, there, there's this cancer ministry, which is kind of fascinating, where they are trying to get churches to help, you know, sort of just help people through cancer in their congregations, mm-hmm. mental illness, you know, all of these things um, really are, the, the church is kind of the place for that, but collaborating outside of the church is extremely important, and we've seen this um you know, with, with Rick and, and Kay Warren and what they've done in trying to bring people together on this. And I think this is another opportunity with this film to do that. Uh, and it's just a, it's a great entertainment value to it. And then there's a, there's a great sort of um, piece of good community work that can come out of it as well. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Is there anything else you'd want uh, any of the listeners to know about Wildflower that maybe we haven't discussed? Well, uh, let me give that a thought for a minute or two. Um, well, maybe a second or two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do we want people to know about Wildflower? Um, it's it's uh, life-changing. The message is life-changing. Um, it is such an encouragement, and it also, I believe, will spur people on to seek support and help that they need. And they might see that there's something bigger than themselves and, and the situation that they're in. And uh, if that message got out, every rainy, cold, snowy, <laughs> all-nighter things that I'm not usually accustomed to because I'm, again, not in the movie business, was worth every second. And um, I would encourage people to just go see it. I would also say, too, that... Um Please, uh, you know, have folks just hit our website, wildflowerthemovie.com. We're going to, of course, have have information where the movie can be purchased, but there's going to be a whole resource section. There's a, there's a discussion guide so as people watch the film, if they watch it in groups. Stacy wrote this wonderful discussion guide, Billy, that, like, um, you know, just is very interesting and just uh, is a wonderful, oh, I guess, uh, conversation starter for the for the film and, um, and um, on the topics of... Um, um, abuse and trauma and, and stuff like that. So, and also, um, as we go forward throughout the release and over the next year, I mean, the film's going to be showing li- shown on Lifetime very soon. We're just going to continue to make this website more robust and have resources for people to kind of um, be able to utilize. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate you guys coming on the show today. Oh, Billy, thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Church boys. Man, I eat these guys. So, Billy, we're going to get to uh, your friend Pastor Jeffers here in just a moment, but as we were getting ready to come back from the break, you revealed something about your your daughter, the terrorist. <laughs> what exactly was going on? Which, wait a second, wait a second. Stand up. What's on your shirt? 
I just saw the very top of it. Is it a Republican elephant? It is, even though I'm not a a registered Republican. But you are an elephant. um, What? But you are an elephant. But (laughs) but I am an elephant. Well, I'm going to ignore that slight, and I'm going to tell you about my daughter. So we actually had a great day. We went to, after work, we went to the park, Mm -hmm. and um, she was the youngest kid at the park today. We have a park, you know, in our neighborhood, in our town home development. And right. we have a homeowners association, which is always a really fun, no, entertaining. They are like, a it's deli- my favorite. It's actually my favorite thing. They are a delight. Yeah. What? They're a delight. Well, this one is a delight. Like, I love the meetings. In fact, what? everybody out there who says you don't want to be part of a homeowners association, ding, ding, I think ding, ding, you're ding, wrong. Ding. We don't because have one the here. meetings are so entertaining. We don't have one here. Well, you're missing out. And the bottom line is that it's a bunch of crazy malarkey and it's amazing but anyway one of the battles that has been going on and i i don't even i'm probably violating some sort of code of ethics anyway one of the battles has been over the playground because they whatever that that material is that bouncy material that they put in on a playground ground up tires whatever it is yeah whatever well this one is solid it's really not very nice but the tree roots are coming up and ripping it out oh really it's a pretty big playground so they've had to continuously um, patch it up. Anyway, it's a big battle because it costs like $30,000 to fix, to replace this, to put cement down and fix the problem permanently. Or for $6,000, I think that's what the number was, they could just fill the whole playground with these like wood chips, right? Um, <laughs> what could go like, wrong? What could go wrong? But the pool is next to the playground. So, oh, sure. Uh, so everybody is, I mean, it was the biggest debate in the world about those wood chips. They're going to end up in the pool. It's going to be awful. Kids are going to be throwing them at each other. And of course, I'm like, oh, please, these people are crazy. It's not going to be 30,000 versus five or 6,000. Yeah. So today we go to the playground and you know, there's a kid with a giant shovel, like shoveling them out, shoveling the wood chips everywhere. Um, and, you know, like my my kid is like at that point where, first of all, she, she doesn't need an example to come up with a bad idea. She could do it on her own. Trust me. But when there is an example, she's going to follow it. And so, you know, she all these eight year old kids are like playing with her and they're like yeah. having a great time and they're yeah. teaching her to play hide and seek. And then I look over and she's like throwing handfuls of this mulch at like these of this like wood chips at these kids. And um, she's got this like nine year old girl terrified at the top of a slide, like throwing them at her. Um, and I'm like, Ava, put them down. So she puts them down and then like other kids are doing it anyway. It's a complete disaster. And I think uh, no wood chips. Does we she don't want wood chips. Does she go around threatening to kneecap people, too? No, she just, you know, she just doesn't like she's one of those kids that she's always going to be the kid. You have right. to tell not to do something seven times <laughs> because she's just got a strong will. She's always going to be that way. But she was pretty good. Like she put him down and she stopped. I explained to her we we can't do that. But it doesn't help when the other four right. kids are doing yeah. it after she. Well, was, the, the good thing was you taught her to throw. So she really wasn't getting them very far. No, she's I'm <laughs> telling you, she's fierce. She's oh, yeah? a good thrower. Oh, that's good. I did not teach her. Somebody else did. I don't know. Well, she's Italian, so naturally throwing things is... (laughs) Dishes. (laughs) Lamps. I just didn't get that gene, even though I'm Italian. Um, You do when you throw it. (laughs) Go ahead, Chris. Like my infant child. (laughs) Throwing with her weak hand. It doesn't help that you have have the strength of a kitten. You are terrible. Okay. All right, so uh, let's see. We were gonna what we were gonna do when we came back. We were talking about Robert Jeffress. What was it? He did something. 
<laughs> you're from. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. Well, we, we, really, we spoke with him last month. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Boys. Oh, yeah. Because... He was on Hannity. That's right. What did... Go ahead. Sorry. All right. This was one of my favorite Hannity segments ever because it was Robert, Je- Robert Jeffries, um, who, as we know, is a preacher yes. down in Dallas. Yes. And this imam, and I'm trying to, where is Imam Muhammad Ali Alahi of the Islamic House of Wisdom in Dearborn Heights, Michigan. Um, Dear, they Dearborn, were on, huh? Yes, and they were they were on together. And yeah, you know, the one thing, I well, okay, I'm just gonna say it. the one thing about Hannity that does make me a little bit um, crazy about Hannity, and I really like him, is like he'll be like, "Dear conservative guest, go ahead and speak," and the conservatives like, "I think da da da," and it goes on and on and on. And then Hannity goes, "Imam, tell me what you think," and the imam's like. Islam is a religion, and Hannity's like, that's not the question. Like, he doesn't let the guy ever, <laughs> like, ever, that whoever he doesn't agree with, they never could get, like, what they want to say out. Yeah, I'm, you know. Do you disagree with me? I think Hannity is lovely. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> I like, I really do like him as a person. I think I he's do a too. really I nice guy. I've enjoyed going on his show when I have. I think um, he's a genuinely good person. I Yes. I don't watch... Fox News in the evenings. <laughs> well, I just don't. I think if you're going to have people on and be in, you know, wh- whatever, have them on and they disagree with you, you got to at least let them get the yeah. idea out yeah. before you're yeah. battling I, no, with them. I, I agree. Yeah. And I've noticed that there's a definite bias in al- allowing somebody to speak. Anyway, yeah. the the whole thing unraveled um, because the imam drew a parallel between the KKK um, and Christians saying, you know, you, I would, I don't consider the KKK representative of all Christians. I think his point was, I don't consider radical Muslims representative of all Muslims. He said, you can either be radical or Muslim. You can't be both. It right. can't be ra- Islam, radical Islam. It doesn't exist, which obviously we can have a debate about that. But right. <laughs> Robert Jeffers was not going to let it go. Let me tell you. <laughs> he... he and actually, do you want to just play I've it? Got it? I've got it here. So I've Let's got just to, play it. No, I'm going to have to turn this, this. Wait, wait, wait. So this is after, this is after the imam says right. that. No, I'm going to turn this. I'm going to play this, and I'm going to turn your channel up because that's where this video is feeding through. So if you want to say something, raise your hand or something so you don't blast okay. the mic. All right, here we go. But the refugees. Pastor Jeffers, the answer is yes. it's difficult to ascertain what's in somebody's heart, isn't it? Well, it certainly is. And let me answer what the imam said about the KKK. Here's why you can't tie it to Christianity. You can't find one verse in the New Testament that says, kill unbelievers. Jesus, the founder of our faith, didn't kill anybody. He was crucified. But you look in the Quran, you can find 35 sword verses. Muhammad was nothing but a bloodthirsty warlord who beheaded 600 Jews who would not follow him into battle. True, and I know everybody doesn't true. like what Donald Trump Trump says, but Donald Trump was right when he said there is something within Islam itself that causes its followers to hate us. Not all Islamics Pastor. are certainly uh, terrorists. Only 5% are. But 5% of 1.5 billion people is 75 million radical Muslims in the world. How did so many people get their religion wrong? That's the you question. Are, you are you not- is that enough, or is there more? <laughs> I think there's more, but just stop it. I can, I can play more. I've got it here. We want, we want for a few more okay, seconds. Okay, here you go. Here you go. 
don't have 100 million radical Christians in the world yeah, today. Wrong. There are 2.2 billion uh, Christians in the world. You don't have 5%, 100 million Christians wanting to chop people's heads off and burn them alive. There is something terribly wrong here. What, what about those Christians who, in the name of Jesus, they bombed the hospital and killed the doctors, and they call it Bible? So that's not do you true. Know how many, do you know how many people were killed in, in abortion bombings by so-called Christians, a grand total of eight. That's not even a good half hour's do you, work. Do you for know a how many terrorist. Muslims were killed by ISIS, which was supported? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Billy, so I'm watching Billy. I'm watching Billy while this is playing, and he's just bouncing up and down. Wait. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he's so. What I love about Robert Jeffers, he's so outraged during this, and nobody's saying anything to make him more mad, but he's just getting more and more pissed off. And then my favorite part, my favorite part, and they call it Bible. Yes, <laughs> that was funny. And they call it Bible. Yeah. Well, no, no, they, no, no, no. That's, Nobody called it Bible. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, that is my. I don't know why it's my favorite thing to ever happen uh, on hand. I just it find is, it. It's like, funny. I, I don't know if it's because it's so candid and yeah. unrestrained yeah or if it's because the anger just increases <laughs> as it and my other favorite part is that's not even the half hour's work for <laughs> yeah that was great it's not even a half hour's work for a good muslim terrorist oh I was like, god what? i can't why well, i oh, think i was the only person in america who enjoyed it that much but i don't care <laughs> it was it's, i it's loved fun. it so every speaking, second speaking of you know just speaking your mind did you see mason's story today about that restaurant in uh, Petersburg, Virginia, with the um, sign. I did. I did. Let's see. Oh, where'd it go? There it is. So, <laughs> the restaurant owner says restaurant owner's blunt sign for disrespectful customers, and it's a restaurant called Mun Cheese in Petersburg, Virginia. And to me, the only thing significant about Petersburg, Virginia, is that that's where I ninety five and I eighty five split. And if you want to go to Atlanta, or if you want to go to a Straight down the, the 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 east coast, you stay on ninety five. If you want to go to Atlanta and all over to the Panhandle of Florida, you stay on eighty five. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But he's got a, a sign on his window because he's tired of people, um, uh, disres being disrespectful. And so he puts up the sign store policy, and it's got nine points. I'm going to read them to you real quick because this made me laugh. <laughs> Number one, and I'm this is not mockery. This is me reading what he has on there. This is not Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, customers sometimes right. Exception, women always right. <laughs> Number three, dis disrespect plus, excuse me. Number three, respect plus money equals we serve you. Number four, disrespect plus attitude equals F you. <laughs> Only he doesn't say F you. <laughs> Number five, we are here to serve you, not to kiss your ass. <laughs> Number six, it. no clothes, no service. Exception, women, no clothes, more service. <laughs> Number seven, no means no. No refund, no exchange, no matter what. Number eight, due to, uh, let's see, due to the price, this is how he has it written, due to the price increase for ammo, do not expect a warning shot for those who want to act a fool. <laughs> Number nine, waiting time, 10 to 15 minutes for pickup. No patience, go to your mama's house. <laughs> <laughs> extra cost uh extra cost extra cost extra free is a french word we speak english 
<laughs> oh, this is guy. It's signed by this guy named Mohammed who owns this. It's his name. Anyway, there's a. You got to go check it out. It's on the Blaze. Mason did it, and he actually went down and interviewed the guy, and it was funny. It's a. It's a fascinating. Anyway, sorry. Just made me think of that. So, uh, let's uh, let's do an awkward transition. Yes, and get yeah, into this other interview that we've got because this guy that you we that we that you actually let me talk to this time is. <laughs> is fascinating so let me get our aqua transition we'll do this one boom so we got this pastor what was his name <laughs> dr <laughs> dr bill purvis he is amazing i can't wait for people to hear. tell give a little backstory and then he he's going to explain his whole story but so this guy when he was 17 before he was a pastor um before he was a christian long story short <laughs> tried to hire a prostitute it was a setup the prostitute yeah. fake prostitute and her husband were were trying to rob him he was stabbed three times in Should the liver dead. the chest and in the um, jugular yeah and is one of the only people to have survived a severed jugular like completely severed like completely severed i won't get into all the details of it the story is crazy he accepted christ immediately in the middle of like being naked and blood soaked in the middle of the road accepted christ and his whole life changed but that's all i'm gonna tell you guys why are you laughing hey the guy's just fascinating and you just think about he's blood out there and you're laughing like. he's he's out there bleeding to death in the street and naked and that's where he meets christ and turns his life around it was it's crazy it's amazing to me it's, i can't wait you just listen to the story because it really is amazing Roll it. It's Billy Hollowell here with the Church Boys, and I have Chris Field on the line. I think this is one of our final interviews, Chris, before you go on vacation to I know. Uh, to Disney, right? I mean, finally. Jeez, get away from you people for just at least a few minutes for crying out loud. <laughs> well, anyway, we have, we have somebody very uh, special on the line here. We have Dr. Bill Purvis, pastor of Cascade Hills Church in Columbus, Georgia. How are you doing today, Pastor? I'm doing good, man. I'm honored to be on the show with you guys today. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on. Now you have a new book out, Make a Break for It. Um, and I want to talk about that, but I have to, you know, I've been reading about your story and everybody who has mentioned your story to me, publicists, others, they've said, This story is wild, this story is crazy, you need to talk to, <laughs> you know, you need to talk to the pastor. And so, oh, you know, yeah. I read your I read about your story and then I said, Oh my gosh, this is is a wild story and we do need to talk yeah. about it. And so we're glad to have you. Uh, we're glad to have you on. Um first oh, yeah. but b- before we get into the really crazy, crazy elements, is it is yeah. it true that when you started at the church, you had no salary, there were thirty two members, and the church has grown to eight thousand members. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's true. We actually had uh we had ten thousand five hundred last Sunday because it wow. was Easter and we had six hundred and eighty one conversions and uh Wow. So it's just crazy. I mean, it's just kind of, it's like riding, you know, riding a mushroom that's growing overnight, but it's been doing that year after year. So cool well, with it. And reaching people that wouldn't go to church, we're kind of called the who's who of center place around here. So <laughs> that's, that's what we do. So how do you even, since you're an expert in this, clearly, since you've, you've been able to do this, how in the world do you go from 32 people to well over 8,000? And how long did that take to happen? Yeah, it's taken us now 33 years, and it's been growing every single year. Not a year that we haven't grown. But wow. we reach the people that don't go to church. I'm not interested in people that go to church. I tell them, stay at your own church. We want the people that don't go. And uh, so our people do the same. They reach their friends. and uh, that That's just that's just how it's kind of it's grown organically that way. And, that's crazy. Uh, and it's, 
Yeah, and, and, but we feel like we're doing it the New Testament way. You know, we're hanging out with the people that Jesus hung out with. We've got them rich, poor, black, and white. I've got Harvard grads, and I've got people that are kindergarten dropouts, and I've got... Oh, so people I've like got, people like Chris. Yeah, you're hilarious, Philip. <laughs> I'm waiting yeah, for that. about the Harvard grad side. So, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, people from every race. I mean, it's just insane, but, but it's really a healthy church. I think it's going to look a little bit of what heaven will look like, and... Uh, and they have fun, and they're good people, and uh, and hardworking. But it's all people that primarily did not go to church before, or or for some reason just really got a hunger for God, and they said that's the place I want to go. Now, how did you? Now, I mean, obviously, any yeah. any good pastor will say, well, you know, God did this and that sort of thing, and absolutely, God did it. Oh, but yeah. he, he uses people to yes. do it. What were the tactics or or um, tools you used to reach those people? I mean, is it a younger crowd? Is it a working class crowd? Uh, what you know? Yeah, here's what's crazy. Our young people love it. We've got the millennials that when you say open your Bibles, they quickly pull out their iPads or their phones. Sure. But then I I had a lady the other day that I did an interview with because I was speaking with Sarah, and we celebrated her hundredth anniversary, her hundredth year birthday. Wow. wow. And uh, so I've got I've got them from all walks of life, all ages. The secret is just being yourself and. You know, I had somebody come to me one time and said, you're the most real guy I ever met. How do you become real? And I said, I don't even know how you answer that. Yeah. I mean, it, you, you just be who you are, you know? Yeah. And uh, and we don't all have to look alike, walk alike, talk alike, dress alike, think alike. You know, if I, if I look at the world and the ocean, all the fish are different. You know, if I look at flowers and nature, there's different. I think God likes variety. Yeah. So, so, so we, that's what we do. Now, you, you said that you guys have been growing every year for the last, you know, 30, yeah. 30 plus years. Uh, yeah. I, I'm assuming you have good retention then. How are you retaining people? Oh, yeah, fantastic retention. A lot of it's through relationships, and then when they're growing, and we keep the mission on track. Now, we also do this. We're near, um, probably about 15 miles away from the largest infantry base uh, that the Army has, mm. Fort Benning, Georgia. So it's kind of like we reach a lot of military officers and infantrymen and they become believers here, and then they go all over the world. So we lose also about a thousand a year, wow. but we still keep growing because we reach more than that. And mm. so we've got them all over the world now. We say that God's sending missionaries around the world, and uh, and He's you know the army's putting the bill for it. Nice. And so it's 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 really just a great. It's, there is a turnover, but there's also people that have been with us for the entire journey. They're you know that's their home and where their family's raised. So. Why do you think, you know, this is a time in which so many churches are, are claiming they're losing members and you have Pew coming out with yeah. their, their big study about how, you know, Christianity is dying and all this other stuff. Why, now, some of that's debatable, but but why do you yeah. think your church has had sort of the opposite, um, you know, dynamic yeah. go on there? Yeah, some of that is, uh, we, we, we look and target directly unchurched people. We make no bones about it. We want the people that are unchurched. And so we know exactly what our target is. We measure every success by that. It's not the crowd that comes in or, or you know, what, what you know, anything else. We look at how many people are we reaching for Christ. In fact, last year, 2015, it looks like 16, maybe on track. But in 2016, we have an outdoor baptistry. We baptize every single day of the year. Now, that means Monday through the next Monday. In the cold and the rain, in the, in the heat, eleven o'clock at night, whatever. Every single day, we baptize a new believer, and it's just people that when they become a believer, and they say, "I can't wait till Sunday." They bring their friends and gather around, and um, and so it's about as New Testament as as I know of. 
Uh, we've never really advertised it. Somehow it just got noticed, and that's taken off. You know, we're getting radio shows like this and TV. That's on Fox and Friends the other day. And so suddenly people said, wow, but we've been doing it all this time out in the field when nobody ever knew it. And uh, But I think keeping the mission clear, knowing who we want and what, what we want, is is so important for us. You know, we're not we're not just having church events for the sake of having church events. If it doesn't reach people for Christ, we say let somebody else do it. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, now we have to get into your crazy backstory because this is, yeah. um, and of course, people are going to have to go out and get your book <clears throat> and read more about I it. But so. yeah. absolutely, we'll make sure we link out to it. But you know, for the purposes of this podcast, you know, we want to hear sort of the big pieces of this. And I guess it really starts when you were 17 years old um, and yeah. you suffered this horrific stabbing attack. Um, yeah. Take take me through that event and, and how it happened and what happened. Okay. I, it started off with basically my, my quickly nature was uh, I was I was come from a dysfunctional family, you know, where there was not much love between a father and I. He didn't have a you know, we just didn't have the relationship. I wanted it, but didn't have it. So it left an emptiness there. It's kind of an alpha male syndrome. He really didn't like having another male in the household. And so I grew up in, with this emptiness, with this hole. I tried to fill it with a- academics, athletics, all that. But no matter what, you just didn't seem to get it. So by the time I'm, I'm you know, 14 years of age, I, I was drinking with a friend. Not, not drunk, but I was introduced to my first alcohol. Uh, and drugs as well. By the time I'm 15, I'm still in school, look good, do well, on the outside of things together. By the time I'm 15, a married lady seduced me, and we had sex for the first time. And and I'm still just kind of now trying to fill this hole. When I'm 17 years of age, I'm driving down a street at night, 2 a.m. in the morning with a friend, and we turn a street corner, and I see this prostitute on the side of the street. And so I asked my friend, I said, have you ever been with a prostitute? He said, no. And I said, let's do this. And he didn't want to. He said, no, Bill, don't do it. But I said, you know, I didn't listen, and I was reckless. So I turned around and pulled up beside her. Well, a man came out of the bushes, and, and he started talking to us and negotiating. And I assumed he was the pimp. I would later find out he was actually her husband. He had been in prison before. He had set up this scene so that he would put her on the street corner. She would lure somebody in. He would take them back to their home, and then he was, gonna, he was actually going to rob them and, if possible, murder them, too. And I didn't know any of this. I, I found that out in court. Well, the, the, the pimp's talking to me at the window, and we all negotiate. So now they get in the car. So there's four of us in the automobile. Uh, she, her husband, and my friend and myself. We drive up to a house about a couple blocks away. And uh, I leave him, the, the pimp, and, and a friend of mine in the car. And the lady and I go up to the house. And we walk up these little steps and go inside and there's a bed on the right side and a single light hanging from the ceiling with a little switch on it. And then another door that goes into the other part of the house. She and I are standing there. She gets fully undressed. So I do the same. I get fully undressed. I just follow her lead. She points to the bed. So I start to head over there and then she turns the light off. When she turns the light off, I'm waiting for her to come sit down, but I hear some noise in the room and I realize somebody's moving around. It doesn't sound like it's coming from where she is. So I, I start to stand up, and as I stand up, she turns the light back on. And to my horror now, this guy that was in the car is now standing in the room, and he's right there in front of me. He's standing right beside her. And in his hand, he had walked. He told my friend, he said, I'm going to get a cigarette. And he got out, and he walked around the front of the house and came through and stopped by the kitchen. He picked up a butcher knife. 
the blade on that knife was nine and a half inches long. When she had the signal, when you turned the light off, he would step in the room. When she turned it back on, he was in there. So it worked perfectly on their end. So she turns that light on. I'm standing up. He's right in my face. And I promise you, the words on his, out of his lips were so calm. They were just chilling. He said, now you're going to die. And, and before I knew it, he swung that knife. It went into my chest. It went an eighth of an inch below my heart. It came out my back. The only thing that stopped it was the handle of the knife. I remember being, it felt like being hit in the side with a baseball bat. And I looked down and I saw the handle of the knife up against my chest. While I was trying to gasp for breath, all of a sudden he pulled it out and he swung the second time. And I moved backwards, but he lunged forward and it went into my throat. It went in one side and it came out the other. It cut my jugular vein completely in half. As far as not, I'm one of the few people that live with that. You should bleed out within, you know, within anywhere from five minutes. to Some people have lived 20 minutes that compressed it. Some have lived even longer, I've read, over the years. But it went in my throat, and, and then he pulled it out. Well, by this time, I'm starting to gather my thoughts that this is a madman. And that's when I, you know, I got to make a break for it. So I, I start fighting. I hit him and knock him down, and he falls flat, and I leap over him to get to the door. And from his back, he swung the knife up again, and this time it goes in my liver. Oh. Now, you know, I had, it was crazy. I had been with a friend many years ago, earlier than that, about two years earlier. He'd been stabbed one time with an ice pick and died. And I'd been stabbed in three fatal places in a matter of seconds. I grabbed the door. I'm trying to get out, but I had locked the door coming in. This guy's getting up and I'm just trying to get the door open. And finally I just back up and I hit the door. Fortunately, it was an old house, an old door. And the whole door didn't it didn't swing open. It fell down from the top to the bottom like a plant. My friend says he was standing in the, sitting in the car. He said, I heard all this banging around going in there. And I, he said he was squinting his eyes to see what in the world's going on. He said, all of a sudden, the door fell down. And I was standing there completely naked, covered in blood. I leaped off the steps and ran past him. And I hit the hood of the car. And I screamed, get out of here. Now, here's what's crazy. I staggered about 30 more feet fell on a light pole out there, just grabbed it and was holding on. And really here's where the story really, and it's all documented. The doctor has written about it and, and kept the records and showed others. And, and the DA has told it. So it's been so documented. I've lived it now 33 years or, or more than that. So people are well aware it's a true story and I've got the scars to prove it. But what I did was two weeks before that day, the craziest thing of all, here's the way the setup was two weeks before that, a friend had gone to a church and somebody said, go tell anybody you know that it doesn't know God, that you think are just lost. Go tell them about God. And this guy came up to my door and knocked on the door, and me and another friend were in the house. And when I opened the door, he looked at me and he said, Bill, everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. And then apparently, you know, he was nervous, and that was his first time witnessing because his eyes got wider, and he said, I, I got to go. <laughs> so he just took <laughs> off. Well, my friend, he said, what do you want? I said, I don't know. He's so that was kind of weird. But here's what he did. When he said those words, you know how you get a song in your head and you can't get that song off your head? You try it, it won't go. Those words stuck with me. And that night when I staggered out to that light pole, choking on my own blood, as I knelt there, I heard those words. Everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. And I heard them that clear. And I didn't, I'd never been to church. You know, I didn't read a Bible. I used to joke about it with my friends. I'd say, loan me a dollar, and I'll pay you back next time I see you in church. And they'd say, well, there goes that dollar. And so I just 
You know, I was not that church boy. I was not that religious boy. I didn't know that stuff. And so that night, laying there holding on to that pole, I cried out. When I heard that word, everything you're looking for will be found in Jesus. I just said, Jesus, come into my life. Save me. Save my life. Forgive me. Save my sins. And I mean, I was just, everything I could pray, I was praying in desperation, knowing I was going to die. But I didn't want to spend eternity lost, and I just knew that, that I had gone too far. I knew I had pushed it so far that, that my life was over. And that was, it was really a, a real deathbed repentance. Wow. My friend backs the car up real quick. He's squealing the tires. It was a 69 Camaro, so it was kind of a muscle car. You could hear the motor and the tires squealing. It quilled up beside me. I jumped in, and fortunately, there was a, a medical center. The hospital was less than a half a block away. He didn't even get out of second gear before we were under the canopy at the emergency room. I leaped out of the car and grabbed an orderly that was standing outside and fell on him and said, I need some help. He picked me up and threw me on a gurney and started running down the hallway. And that hospital went from being very quiet at 2 a.m. in the morning to being a, a madhouse. It was just chaos. People coming out of every door. The interesting thing was there was a one of the best uh, cardiovascular surgeons in the entire city was there that night. Also, a trauma surgeon from Vietnam was there that night and another doctor. And so it was all the right players in the right place. Wow. So within five minutes, I'm, I'm under surgery. I mean, within five minutes, they're dealing with me. So I remember one of the doctors put his hand on my throat. He said, get the district attorney up here. This young man's been stabbed to death. He's not dead yet. He'll be dead before he gets here. His jugular vein is completely severed. And they were doing all they could to compress it and to get me under and I woke up 11 and a half hours later in surgery, out of surgery, and looked around the room and saw nurses and doctors and police and, and realized, man, that wasn't a nightmare. And that was the beginning. That was the change in my life hmm. that did it then and has kept me on track ever since. There's a whole lot more, but that's, so that's you, really what it was. You yeah. accepted Christ in the middle of that, you know, as you yeah. walked out of the house, as you – did this guy come after you, by the way, in the middle of you? I mean, it, it was probably pretty quick, but did he come out of the house yeah. after you? No, he actually stood in the doorway. My friend said he saw him standing in the doorway, run up to it, and saw him standing there. And, and the girl, too, both of them, he said, were standing in the doorway by the time he was getting the car backed up. And he was afraid they were coming, but they stood there and watched. They thought I would die. They didn't, they, he really didn't think that I would even live through that. Mm-hmm. And he actually gathered my clothes and my wallet and all the other stuff. And they left and stayed in the motel room that night and then went to another city. And he wasn't caught for six months. The police were looking for him, and six months later, they caught him. And so, were they just you know, that? Were they, were they simply? I mean, was the setup an attempt to rob you and then kill you after robbing you? Yes. Yeah. The attempt was to lure us in one at a time, and uh, and then to to kill us. And he had no problem with that. In fact, his record was horrible. Mm. I had a policeman that one time looked at his record just a few years back, and uh, and said, "Man, you, you met the devil himself. That guy has lived his life that way." Wow. And uh, is he still in jail to this day? No. No, he's supposed to go. At that time, they didn't have attempted murder law in the books in Georgia. They called it aggravated assault. Ten years was the most you could get it. The judge gave him ten years. Uh, and actually, the judge, of all things, before he died, when he retired, came to my church and was a member. And, uh, and so I was able to reach him as well. But the judge gave him ten years. He got out in three. And Jeez. at the end of three... He went back, I think, after that for another crime that he committed, and he's been in and out throughout all all of his life. Has he ever reached out to you? No, he never has. Actually, somebody one time told him, a policeman said that he saw him in a jail and went up to him and said, 
I know you. You're the one that, that stabbed my pastor. And he said, he asked the question. He said, you're Pastor Bill Purvis? He said, yeah. He said, yeah. He said, would you like to meet him? He said, no, I never want to see him again. And uh, and that was, the, that was the closest we've ever had of any kind of contact before. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, that is, I mean, that's an insane, it's just an insane story. But so take me yeah. through the next steps of your life then, because that's a huge change. How long was the recovery and then what came next? Yeah, I stayed in, I stayed in intensive care for about 10 days, uh, seven to 10 days. And then I uh, went into convalescent wing where you can move around and eat regular food and all that for another seven days. So I was there probably about 22 days. And then I got out. I lost a lot of weight. My friends would come to me and they would say, uh, they'd say, Bill, you know, when you get out, we'll go back the old way and we'll live this way. And, you know, and, and I would say, look, y'all don't understand. I look like the same guy on the outside, but somebody different's living in me and I want to do something different. They would say, what? And I said, well, I want to go to people I've wronged and ask for forgiveness. I said, I want to go to church. And one girl even said, Bill, you lost too much blood. And, uh, and another person said, Bill, look, you don't understand. Most people, they go to a youth camp. They get this, you know, conversion experience that lasts two weeks, and they go back the old way. They said, you'll get over it, and I've never got over it yet. But I would read the Bible. Here's what's crazy. There was a Bible in the nightstand, a Gideon Bible at the hospital, and I started reading it. And I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know who came first, Abraham, Joseph, Moses. I didn't know anything. And so I'd start reading it, and a nurse saw how naive I was, how hungry I was. So she would take her shift, and I know her to this day, and uh, she would she would take her uh, shift, and she'd come in 30 minutes before, and she would read me the Bible. And here's what's crazy. You know how people sometimes say, well, I called Job Job. I literally called Psalm Spasms. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I said, I was reading Spasms 37 today. She'd say, what? And she said, I've never met anybody so green or naive. And she'd be reading to me, you know, she'd say, Jesus walked on the water. And I'd say, what? Hold on, nobody walked on water. She'd say, he saved you, didn't he? I'd say, read on. So, uh, it, it was just, it, that was the beginning, the change right there. And then, I, you know, after that, I, I went to college and went on to seminary. And when, I, when God called me to ministry, I was the last guy. I didn't know anybody. Nobody in my family were preachers. And I didn't know what to do. And yet I knew that when God called me, I, I had to do it. My first invitation is the craziest thing. I gave an invitation, and I didn't know how to give an invitation. I asked people to come to Christ. Here's what I said. I, I shared my testimony real quick, and then I said, look, if you want what I got, come get it. And, and people just started responding. Yeah. And, God just showed up and he yeah. confirmed his call. And when I took Cascade Hills, it was the smallest church in all of our area in a city that's surrounded with hundreds and thousands of churches. And so I never thought it would do anything. And, and God blessed it the way it is today. I'll tell you one of the coolest things I mean, um, is that, the, you know, remember the light pole I told you about that I clung to that night? Yeah. I never told anybody this. This was my secret between me and God and my wife. But every year on April the 28th, I would go to that pole and I would kneel down and I'd spend time thanking God for saving my soul and life. Mm. And I never told anybody. That was just a quiet thing between us. One time I was actually in Dallas, Texas speaking on April 28th. And I got a plane and I flew back to Atlanta and then down to Columbus and then got a taxi and went over there, prayed while the cab driver waited, got back in the taxi, went back to the airport, went back to Atlanta, and then flew back to Dallas and spoke. <laughs> but it was always a secret. You know how when the Bible says that Jesus had to heal 10 lepers and one came back and said, thank you. Right. Well, I wanted to be that one. I wanted to be the guy that never forgot. And about two years ago, 
the hospital that was so close to the place where I was saved, that parking lot, they'd bought that parking lot and they were demolishing it. And when and the board was talking to say, for some reason, that megachurch pastor across town has some kind of connection with that light bulb. And so they said, call him and find out what the story is. And they called me and I told them, they said, would you like for us to give you that very pole? And I said, sure. And they gave it to me. So I, that day I stood up in front of the church and said, I've never told you this, but the place I was saved, I went back all those years, over 30 years now, to that same spot on that day. And a dozen of our men in our church who were contractors, they voluntarily, on their own time, and I, you know, we paid some of the cost of the material, but they built an outdoor prayer garden, a stone garden, and put that pole in the center of it. So it's on our church property now. Wow. It's got this inscription on it that says, April 28, 1974, our pastor, in desperation, cried out to God and received a miracle at this spot. And perhaps if you're in desperation today and cry out to God, he gives the miracle or answer you need as well. Hmm. And so we see people praying there all the time now. So wow. Just wow. A, yeah, it is so cool. That um, is cool. It, it's a story I couldn't have written. It's just it's just God navigating a young boy who was aimless and reckless to a life that I would have never dreamed of. So I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of I, I shouldn't say people, a lot of Christians go through a lot less than you've gone through as far as mm-hmm. uh, someone attacking them uh, in, in, in a multitude of ways. But and you yeah. had a very physical and real and life-threatening attack, and, and you sound, yeah. you sound um, certainly as though you have got the Holy Spirit working in you and through you. Yeah. Uh, people well, who have gone through lesser situations, or what, what many would consider lesser situations, have a lot of trouble yeah. with forgiveness uh, yeah. when that kind of situation happens or trying to deal with it. How did you, I'm, I'm yeah. assuming that you've gone through the, those stages of, I need to forgive people who have wronged me and all that. How did you go yeah. through it and how do you maintain that, that optimism? Yeah, well, from the start with, I realized that, you know, if God could forgive me, then I have no right to not forgive another. Now, if I, if I expect God to forgive me, then I should forgive other people because I, I, I feel like I've always been the, the one that ought to be at the back of the bus, the one at the back of the line. I've never thought I deserved or earned anything, so... So, you know, I think that you, you put it in proper perspective. You, you just realize that we are all sinners. We sin in different ways. We all mess up and make mistakes, but, but I don't have the right to, uh, to not forgive somebody else. And, and, and even the God that stabbed me, I forgive him. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, you know, I don't hang out with him. I don't send him a new butcher knife every year for Thanksgiving. You know, <laughs> you know, we're, you know, we're, we're you know, basically, if we, you know, I forgive him, but, but, you know, there, and, and for, forgiveness doesn't mean all the time that, that things will get back exactly as it was. But you've got to be willing to realize that forgiveness is like a chain or anchor, and it will hold you back. And it will keep you from being who you should be or going where you should go. And, and for, you know, it, it's one of those things that, that if we realize how, how much freer we can become when we let people go, let God take vengeance, let God, you know, do any justice. We just say, God, this happened. I'm hurt. This, ha-, you know, but I'm I'm not going to hold on to it. And and you deal with them as you need. I'm I choose to not carry that baggage. And and it gives you a lot of freedom. It gives you a clear conscience. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been. I mean, this has been absolutely amazing. We would love to to have you back again. And we're going to make sure we link out to the book. Um, is there anything else? Is there anything else you want people to know that maybe we haven't discussed about your story about your book? Yeah, the, the biggest thing, of course, is buy the book at uh, BillPurvis.com or Amazon online, and then get it there. And uh, and then the other is, just know this, that God still loves you. God has a plan. I don't care if you 
messed up. I don't care if, you know, even if you can't forgive yourself, God can. And, and I hope people understand that there's a God that loves them and loves them enough that he sent Jesus for them. And man, I thank you guys for what y'all are doing. You know, the, the kind of people you're reaching is the kind of people that I love and care about. Mm. So, I, you know, I say you carry on and do what you do, and I'd be glad to be your guest anytime. Oh, thank and you. And I appreciate the opportunity today. Thank you. Thank you so here. much. We really appreciate your time. Hey, thank you. Back to the church boys. Well, William, before we get out of here, you were telling me a little story about uh, your your wife. What your wife went to some political rally today? <laughs> no, she for didn't. Bernie Sanders. She, she was telling me she works. Um, she works in the borough where Bernie Sanders. Uh had a big event and like 20,000 people showed up in New York city for it. Apparently 20,000 like people. I think that's, I could be wrong about that. It looked like, I mean, it was an insane number of people. Well, and that's, um, I mean, it's in the, in the middle of a work day, right? Can, yeah. But can I tell you something? Yeah. Whenever I see, and I actually am a big believer in the passion and the, and the devotion and the potential of young people, Okay, but whenever I see them flocking towards a political candidate, you better sure as hell believe that I'm running the opposite direction. Yes, because as as wonderful as young and as motivated as young people are when it comes to ideas and long the long term jevity of meaningful ideas and the complexity. What was the term you used? The the long term jevity. Yes. Okay. I don't that. even know what I'm I've saying. I've never heard that term before. Midnight, but of of ideas that matter, I don't want anything. I don't think young people are qualified to make those <laughs> I, sorts I of totally decisions. Totally agree. In fact, that's one of the things. Just a second, I have to write down long term jeopardy because I've never heard that word before. I'm gonna... Did I actually use it properly? Because I'm so tired. No, you didn't. Long term jeopardy. Well, it's a new word. Oh, that's, that's a good one to le- add to my lexicon here. Long-term jeopardy. Okay. Wait, um, some people have used it. I'm looking. This well, is, it's there's, not there's a thing called it's called longevity, not long-term jeopardy, right? I th- I don't think that that's an actual word. It it might be a financial term. Go well, yeah. You were speaking economics. I didn't realize. I don't think it's even a, lo- a financial term. Oh, I there's think. a blog called Long-Term Jeopardy. There are no blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> I made it up. Well, look, I meant to say longevity, but I'm going to go. I like long term jeopardy. Go with it. We'll call it. In fact, the, that could be show title Long Term Jeopardy. Now, is it hyphenated? There's no hyphen in there, right? Is it just long term jeopardy? Or is it long yeah. hyphen term jeopardy? I don't know. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> well, decide. So we, make a sh- we can make it show title if you want. Uh, I'm going to go with no. Let's no not hyphen? have one in there. Okay, long term jeopardy. Okay, we can do that. No hyphen. I'll take out the hyphen here. Long-term jeopardy. New word. All right. Um, yeah, but I, as far as the Sanders thing goes, I, millennials, I don't trust them. I mean, as far as the political... Yes, I, I told... Not, I shouldn't say don't trust them. I don't trust them politically, as, as we've seen this election. Uh, you're right about they've got a lot of juice. They've, they, they're energized. They want to do stuff. But they're, they haven't given a lot of thought to the things that they want to do. You're gonna make me seasick moving your your computer around like that. Trying to do. Well, they haven't lived. They haven't. Right. Li- and neither have, I'm not saying I've lived to have every opinion, but it's very idealistic. And also, there should be sirens going off that this particular person, who I actually 
admire because Bernie Sanders is I admire his honesty, but he honestly believes that a woman should be able to abort right. a baby at nine months. That should be a cause concern right. for concern. The socialist ideology yeah. should be a cause for concern. If that's not concerning you, you might be a millennial at heart <laughs> or, or, or an idiot. But um, so I guess but that's the thing that watching this election, that's the thing that has scared me. Not scared. Scared isn't the term, but I don't know what other term to use. Scared me the most. Terrified. Terrified. <laughs> <laughs> me the most about both the Trump campaign and the Sanders campaign. Just how off the rails people seem to be about issues and about political acumen and about the policies and, and the things that are important and just going with, with feelings. Because the Bernie Sanders thing isn't based really on a logic. It's based on what you have I like and I want it and it's not fair that you have it. And that's an emotional, selfish response. And a lot of the Trump support is based on emotional, angry response and often selfish and, and, and this desire to get even with them, you know, and, and, and it's not healthy. And, and in fact, Sanders and Trump are both tapping into a get even with them feeling. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the two of them and how Absolutely. they, you know, defied political odds. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of that going on. But the bottom line is, and this is not an offense to millennials. When I was younger, I was doing things that I thought were, you know, at, at the time, you know, I had a lot of energy. Let's put it that way. I was doing a lot more. I think they have a lot of energy. I think they have a lot of interest in these issues. Yeah. I just am convinced that anybody who is supporting a person who doesn't quite understand the very fabric that has made the country yeah. what it is, yeah is not yet mentally equipped to be voting for somebody who I would also vote right. for. And so I'm running the opposite direction. I'm screaming. <laughs> right. I'm not just running. I'm <laughs> flaring my arms, screaming, and I'm probably soiling myself because I'm so terrified by who they're voting, by well, what they're doing. And what's and, and it's terrifying also, 20,000 people on a Thursday in the middle of the workday go down to a Bernie Sanders socialist rally. That ought to scare the poop out of just about everybody. Well, I mean that that—that's the kind of movement he has. <laughs> Scares the poop out of people. It's their movement. <laughs> but that's—that's that's the support he has. I mean, doesn't that—that that reveals a lot? It's a frightening amount of things. That it, number of things that it reveals. The oh, de definitely. Oh, and yeah, I think we're a broken culture and country in a lot of ways, and yeah. th that this is what we're seeing now. It, it hadn't quite trickled into the political. Yeah. Um, sees it was 2008 when it started to, but now it has. Yeah, and yeah. now not only is everything bizarre world outside of politics, politics has become officially bizarre. World yeah, too. it has. It has. So, um, but you know what will fix that? Uh, uh, uh what more church boys? Yes, I think so. Don't you think? I think, I think, I think I mean, absolutely. And what we've, we've had our biggest week yet. I think this I mean, week, one of our been, biggest weeks. Yet. We've been killing it this week and it's been fun to see. And, we're on to you, Doc and Skip. We're coming for you. You better watch out. <laughs> we are. We watch, are on. Watch out, we Buck are on Sexton. The, we are the on buck the way. We'll stop here. <laughs> the Buck never got here. <laughs> My God. Luckily, he's never heard this show. Probably uh, so. He doesn't even know who we are. No, he does know who we are. That's not fair. I love Buck. I um, you know what else I love? Vacation, and I'm about to go on it. I'm very jealous. It's my first one. I mean, my first actual vacation. I think I was telling you like in 10 or 12 years. You got to take a vacation. So, I mean, like we've gone on vacations. Like like last year, you and I recorded a show while I was on the Oregon coast. I still worked 40 to 60 hours that week while we were on vacation. So, um, 
This will be an actual. This is vacation. actually. I'm gonna unplug. I'll have my. I'm, and I'm totally unplugged. I'll have my laptop and I'll have my phone, but I won't be working. Working. I'll answer emails that sort of thing. Um, fan mail. If you want to send any fan mail, just Chris at the Church Boys. If you want to send complaints, it's Billy at the Church Boys. Um, but anyway, so the answer. The answer to these problems is more is more Church Boys. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen out there, listen harder, would you please? And, and you know, uh, Morgan Freeman loves us. Oh, so. he does absolutely. He's, he promised to come back on, right? Uh, say, say that he did, so he has to. Yeah, Morgan Freeman promised to come back on. <laughs> so, we're going to go ahead and head out now, uh, now that we're going to be sued for lying about Morgan Freeman. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, I'm, not, I'm not worried about that. Any advice for the people out there, William? Uh, read your Qurans and your Bibles so you can see who was right, the That's Imam right. or Robert Jeffries. That's right, and listen harder, people. Listen harder. Oh, and if you think of it, go to, the, go to iTunes and, and give us a five-star review. None of this one-star review garbage. Itching. You're what? Is itching? My back. Oh, your back ah. is itching. It's go, like in that spot you just can't get to. Ow! Put your clothes back on. Oh, that's just obscene. Would you stop that? The Church Boys.